Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father God, we thank you that you have given us Christ. That you would, as um, J.I. Packer put it, adopt us through propitiation. That you would give us everything that we don't deserve. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that so often we think we need more than Christ. When Christ himself does not seem to be enough for us. Father, forgive us for that. Forgive us for our entitlement. Forgive us for acting like spoiled children as opposed to grateful ones to You, our Heavenly Father. And Lord, I pray that You would so captivate our hearts with Your own glory that we would need no other motivation, that we would need no other pursuit, that we would want no other thing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2019, the less than prestigious Darwin Awards were given out, uh, and there was a rare double honor where, where one feat uh, by two men, they sought to recreate that scene. And so they stopped the car, lifted the caution arm, slowly pulled under it, got back in the car, and sped up the ramp. But unlike the Blues Brothers, who had a cop engine, cop tires, cop suspension, and a mission from God, these two Texans lacked all of those things and instead had a Chevy Cruze. Not built for this kind of thing. Needless to say, as they tried to shoot the gap, they came up a bit short, and by short I mean at the bottom of the lake. And now they serve as a warning to all in and out of Texas to not shoot the gap. Some call this a cautionary tale. I would call it a good example of the bad example. And today, as we end our time in 2 Kings 5, we have a good example of a bad example of a man who sought his own glory and his own prestige and came up tragically short. So let's learn of our good example of the bad example, the uh, B.C., I don't know if it's a Darwin Award or not, but he, he certainly fell short, and his name is Gehazi. And starting in, so in 2 Kings 5, what's happened is Naaman, who was a mighty warrior of Syria, had leprosy. A girl who had been kidnapped from Israel as plunder of war said to her master, Naaman's wife, oh, that Naaman would find the prophet in Samaria 
and he would be cured. Naaman eventually found Elisha. Elisha said, dip in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman said, that sounds like a terrible idea, but got talked into it, did it, and was cured. Tried to reward Elisha with quite the earthly bounty. Elisha said, no. And Naaman went his way. Followed Naaman, and Naaman saw someone running after him. He got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me, saying, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of prophets. Please give them a talent of silver, two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, oh, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver into the, into the two bags and two changes of clothing and laid, laid on two of his servants, and he carried them before Gehazi. Now, each talent of silver, you know from the tiny footnote, is like 75 pounds. So he gives him 150 pounds, gives him a couple people to carry all this stuff. And when he came to the hill, he took wing to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Gehazi may have thought that it was unjust that they were not compensated for the healing work that God had done. And there may have been a shred of good motive somewhere in what he did. But how he did it was all lying and all sin. And ultimately, it revolved around extending his own glory. Hey, I was part of something great. I deserve something great. And Gehazi's a bit of a scoundrel here. He... He masks his own selfishness somehow within God's glory and uses nothing but lies to try to accomplish his own glory. And being a bit of a scoundrel, he offers up two lessons for us. And one is based on his actual actions and, and serves as a stark warning for us. And the other is completely counter to him, perhaps could be taken as what he should have done, and serves as an encouragement, and I think and I hope as an empowering push for us as we pursue this eternal habit of evangelism. So the first is a warning in what not to do, and the second is what I hope will be an empowering push for us towards the eternal habit of evangelism. So first of all, the warning and, and what we see from Gehazi is lesson one, the gospel does not exist for my earthly gain. The gospel does not exist for my earthly gain. Gehazi, he's all about the financial here. The gospel's not for your financial gain. Gehazi sees a need. He's like, man, I gotta get paid. And he sees the money that, that Naaman brought, and he sees the money that Naaman left with. Now we see back in, uh, in verse 5 that he brought uh, 
10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold. If we put this out based on what Google said uh, on Thursday, what the equivalent of the, the value of gold and silver are per ounce, this was about $232,000 of silver in modern day terms and roughly $4.2 million worth of gold in modern day terms and the 10 changes of clothes, which can't be ignored. This is a lot of money. This is a lot of money. I mean, this is, we can think like, oh, that's old time, that's old time measurements. Like, you know, it was probably like a few bags. No, this is, this is roughly a combined total of $4.4 million worth of, of, of metal just walking right out the door. And Gehazi takes the moment and he doesn't see that a commander of the Syrian army has just been cured of leprosy and is now worshiping God and God alone. He doesn't take the moment to recognize how amazing that is. Instead, he takes the moment and he goes, man, like I just want some of that. I don't want all of it. I don't need, I don't need four point four million dollars but forty thousand would be nice watch the life of Jesus if we want to look at what it looks like to have all of our treasures be in heaven we look no further than Jesus himself it seems obvious when Jesus says, don't store up treasures where moth and rust destroy, but store up treasures where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Store up your treasures in heaven. For where your treasures there your heart will be also. It seems obvious that the gospel would not be for financial gain. And we, and we should have great caution and beware of those who claim to be ministers who tie God's blessing to financial gifts. If you give me X, you will be blessed this much more. That those who have become uber rich off the gospel, we should not exchange the glories of the gospel for earthly treasure. And Gehazi laid the groundwork for the likes of Kenneth Copeland and others by saying, you know what, there's, a, there's something to really be gained here on earth through the power of God. And he was the pioneer of ministers who sell the gospel by saying, if you give me money, you will receive from God. As though God were an ATM and a get-rich-quick scheme. And this has become one of the most vain and effective deceptions. And honestly, I'm not that worried that you guys are out there thinking, well, who, what rich person can I get to come to Christ so they can write me a check? I don't think you guys are too worried about that. But we need to be worried about people who teach that. And we need to be aware of that. I think what's possibly more of a temptation for us is the power and influence Elisha tells him at the end, was this a time to accept money and garments and olive orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants? There is a propensity within people to see what's in it for them. 
And to look at the gospel as a vehicle of that. And what doors can the gospel open for me? And seeking out power and influence. And those who are seeking out power and influence are not evangelizing in love. And we need, as we, as we look at trying to lead people to Christ, we need to keep the opening words of 1 Corinthians 13 well in front of our mind. That you could speak the words of heaven, speak in oracles and visions, but if you don't have love, you are a clanging symbol. And you could preach the Romans road. You could lay out the gospel. You could do the four spiritual laws. You could do all of that, declaring these eternal truths of Christ. And if you don't have love, you're just a really annoying noise at that point. We need to have love. And if our goal is power and influence, we will not be loving. We need to see individuals as uh, not as an opportunity, but as a person. If, if the gospel is all about power and influence, then we would use those that we should be serving and loving. And the church, particularly the church in America, I think has had some past confusion on this. That we thought the answer to our country's problems came from having the right people in office as opposed to God Himself through the spreading of the Gospel and disciple-making. And we've abandoned those tasks of spreading the Gospel and making disciples who make disciples for a ballot. In the book Evangelism as Exiles, Elliot Clark writes this. He says, Far too often we are a happy and hope-filled people as long as our churches are prospering and as long as we have a seat at the cultural and political table. But it's highly unlikely that we'll invite the world, other races and creeds and lifestyles, around our own kitchen table. We are of the world, but somehow not in it. This is believing the lie that the answer comes in something other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think there's an idolatry issue, at least among some believers in the church. And it's an idol of political influence. And idols, I think, are most exposed when we start to lose them. And it grieves my heart how much I've seen a disproportion between grieving the loss of from moral majority to moral minority to, to who are we and what is our role in politics? And seeing Christians grieve that, and there is a sadness in that, but the grief of that, at least in my observance, has so far outweighed the grief of neighbors and friends and family members not knowing Christ. And by measuring the grief, what I'm really doing is listening to what I hear people talking about the most. And I hear people talking about the one and that power and influence and the loss of that power and influence much more than I hear them talking about the loss of a neighbor or a loved one. And that needs to be a reality check in our heart that we have been complicit or at least participatory in this same sin of Gehazi of saying, what's in it for me? And, if I, and I can leverage the gospel to make things go the way I want to.
And both of these aspects, the reaching for the financial, reaching for the, the power and influence, both of these lack a key element. And that key element is trusting God for the rewards of the gospel that he has promised us in Scripture. Trusting God that one day we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, great is your reward. Trusting God that while we may be rejected here on earth, there are blessings to come in heaven and a crown of glory that will not fade away. And we lose sight of that. And I want us to hold tightly to it. Say, God, I believe you that that is coming and I am going to pursue that. And that will be the reward I go that our goal will not become an established parallel culture that will somehow win people because it's slightly better than their own, but that our goal will simply to become to declare the power of Jesus. The last warning here in, in Gehazi's example of the gospel not being for earthly gain is our own recognition. Gehazi may have been the servant that went to Naaman at Elisha's request and said, you should go dip in the Jordan seven times and you'll be cured. Gehazi wanted to be thanked for that. He wanted to be rewarded for that. It was an I deserve something mentality. Let us not be impatient for the reward that our Father has promised. He will keep His word. Jesus tells the story of, of a servant in a house. That the master is out and, and he will tell the servant, alright, I'm coming back in such and such time. Prepare a meal for me. And the servant will have that prepared. And if the master says thank you, will the servant not say, I'm just a servant. I'm doing what I'm told. And that's the heart we're called to have. Not a, hey God, look what I did for you yesterday. You're so lucky to have me. It is not Christ-centered to seek for our own fame. But we have a great need to be Christ-centered. And I know I'm too often me-centered, looking for my convenience, especially in this area of evangelism. That so often I'm like, oh, I should really say something, but it's so awkward. And I'd like to get invited back. I'll just, I'll just wait for the right time. And I operate on an urgency that deals around my own convenience. And, and that, that deals around the culture of social norms. And that doesn't deal around the reality that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And I can look at my own life and I look back and hindsight 2020 becomes very cruel as I see missed opportunity after missed opportunity after missed opportunity. And the common theme is a me-centeredness. Not necessarily looking for the financial gain, but definitely 
looking to have influence and worried that if I talk about Christ, I'll lose that influence in those relationships. And what I want to call us to, and what I want to call myself to, and what I believe Jesus is calling us to in being Christ-centered, in this idea of taking up our cross to follow Him, is a, my social convenience isn't that big of a deal anymore. And what's a really big deal is that here's a person who doesn't know that God loves them and that apart from Christ they will face God's judgment as children of wrath instead of facing heaven as a co-heir with Christ and adopted child of God. A me-centered approach to evangelism looks for the social convenience, looks for just the right in, looks for it to be smooth and flawless. A Christ-centered approach to evangelism just looks for obedience. Jesus doesn't tell us, and when the time is right, when the lights are low, the fog machine's going at the end of the service, then tell the gospel. No, it just says preach the good news to all creation. Let us be focused on, on obedience and not what's in it for us or what's at stake for us. Lesson two, and this is what I hope is that holy push forward, that empowering push forward, is that the gospel is holy for the glory of God. The whole gospel is for the whole glory of God. And when we look at that, we have to say, well, well what's my role in this? What's my role? Let me recognize my role in the glory of God. And as we look at my role, the first thing that becomes apparent, that should become very apparent, is that it's God's gospel. It's not your gospel. It's not your gospel to, to, to determine how it should spread, to determine when the right time to talk about it. It's God's gospel. It's his plan. He's the one that paid the price for it. He bought you with the blood of Jesus. It's his reward to give and to receive. It is all about God. It's His. We, as His children, are His. And so we take up our cross. Our role is to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And as we do that, we need to embrace everything that the cross is. In Evangelism as Exiles, Elliot Clark challenges us to, to embrace the shame and rejection of earth knowing that the surpassing glory of heaven is coming. It is shame and rejection to take up our cross. And those are the things that we are most afraid of in evangelism. And he challenges us to answer that fear with the fear of the Lord. Would we be more afraid of God than our own fear and rejection and loneliness? And as we take up our cross, let's realize we're not in heaven yet. There's an element to which, yeah, we are called to suffer. And it's okay that we're suffering. That's, that's not a closed door. That could very well mean we're doing the right thing. Let us not scorn what Jesus did for us. Let us not scorn the cross. We need to crucify our desires to be treated as normal. We're not normal. We are new creations. 
We need to crucify our desire to be accepted like everyone else because our Lord blesses us when we are persecuted on His account and because we know that if He was hated, we will be hated as well. Let us love the cross and be servants of Christ, not pleasers of people. Let us see taking up our cross with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of Scripture. When Jesus took up His cross, it was for the joy set before Him. As Paul took up his cross, he considered it a slight and momentary affliction. So many times we consume ourselves with the task and fear of taking up the cross, and we don't look at the joy that is to be had, at the joy that is promised as we follow Christ, taking up our cross daily. And if we're going to be serious chasers of joy, serious about experiencing God's love and extending God's love, we cannot separate the task of taking up our cross to follow Him. As we evaluate our role in the Gospel, we need to realize that we are a product of the Gospel, not a producer of the Gospel. You as a child of God, that means you are a product of the gospel. You have been adopted by God. And so let us then with this reality not try and determine who should hear it and who shouldn't at what time, but instead let us be unbelievably generous with it. Let us be unbelievably generous with the gospel. And as we look at our role and we look at this generosity and we look at that it's God's gospel as much as the power and influence would remove love from the transaction of evangelism, looking at it as God's gospel will centralize love. Because we'll be sharing not for by means of gain, but instead by a redistribution of God's love or a greater distribution of God's love is the better way to put that. To greater distribute the love of God. Say, the love of God is not just for me, it is for you. We need to look at our motivation when it's holy for God, that this is for the worship of God. John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad, and he's joked that he really only wrote it for one quote, apparently, because it's the only thing people quote from it, and that's that missions exist because worship doesn't. That we would decentralize ourselves and make evangelism all about God and His work. That the point is no longer where it fits on my calendar. But instead, just declaring who God is and what He's done. And this is our goal, that God would be glorified. That we would worship God in song and action. That we would worship God in how we love our neighbors and how we seek the welfare of our city and how we love other believers and how we care about justice. That God would be glorified. That heaven would celebrate as sinners repent. That we would join in that celebration. That we would pursue the celebration of heaven. And that we would seek for others to know what we have come to know, and that's the salvation of a soul. 
that we would be saved. I want to close by just reading a few verses as we let us let us get captivated by our salvation. See the greatness of our salvation. See the greatness of our God. So much so that we can't be silent about it. So I want to read you a few verses of an old hymn. He washed all our sins, purified them forever, tasted death on a cross, and did slavery there. He took on our nature, the devil has slain, and put you and I on his glorious train. So great the extent of salvation to us, we're partners of Christ and his plan glorious. He'll bring us to glory and we'll rule with him to the uttermost saved by his work. His eternal habit taking up our cross and speaking boldly of the truths of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.